0: turn our Bibles tonight to Colossians chapter number 3, Colossians chapter number 3, and uh, man, what a blessing to get to be here tonight. I'm thankful for the house of God, thankful that uh, God met with us this morning, and uh, I, I praise the Lord for that. Colossians chapter number 3, and uh, I'd like to begin reading at verse number 1. I'm going to try to jump right into the preaching tonight. I have a lot that we want to say and do our best to be mindful of the time. Colossians chapter number 3, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, vows of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the house of God. Thank you for this privilege to be here tonight. I pray that we'd not take it lightly, Lord, that we get to uh, scoot our feet up under your table. Feast upon the bread of life, Lord. Have the truth, the unmitigated, unadulterated, invincible, immutable truth of God be read to us, preached to us, that we might be able to bask ourselves in it. And apply it to our lives, Lord, so rarely that you can find a place where you can find truth, but we can find it in your Word tonight. So I pray that you'd help us to approach it with a reverent attitude and with an open heart. We'll be sure to thank you for what transpires. Lord, we love you. and We thank you for loving us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians chapter number 3 is dealing with what we're going to call tonight the resurrection life. You know, I was uh, talking to my Sunday school class this morning about how you study the Bible. About some things that are important to keep in mind. And, uh, you know, I, I am a dispensationalist. Now, here's what that means. What that means is that I believe God has dealt with man in different ways at different times in human history. Uh, now, that's transparently true if you just casually read the Bible. Uh, God had certain things He expected of Adam and certain things that He expects of you and me that He didn't expect of Adam. Adam and Eve in the garden, they weren't expected to go to church. There was no church. Adam and Eve in the garden, they weren't expected to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that name had not yet been introduced into the human family. But they did have one requirement predominantly placed upon them, and that's they not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that's what God expected them how God expected them to respond in faith to His Word. He said, if you eat of that, uh, then you'll die. And they then had a nail upon which to hang their faith. A statement God had made that they could uh, put their faith in that could transform their life. Well, you go a little further and you'll find after they sinned in the Garden of Eden uh, that uh, human conscience was activated. And now all of a sudden, the conscience becomes the arbiter of the revelation of God. And uh, that becomes the thing that tells people what is right and what is wrong, is God spoke through their conscience. You come all the way down to Genesis chapter number 6, and the Bible says that the imagination of every man's heart was only evil continually. Conscience had failed to restrain human wickedness. after that, you find that God institutes human government, and uh, human government becomes the... Arbiter of God's revelation. That becomes God's sword. That becomes God's arm from Noah on forward. Then you come to uh, Genesis chapter number 12. And you find that humanity, when God put them in charge of a government, what did they do? They made a one world government. <laughs> they built a tower of Babel. And they sought to overthrow the yoke of God's authority. And so God then begins to deal. He speaks to a man. The Bible calls him a Syrian ready to perish uh, by the name of Abraham and begins to deal in promise with Abraham. Now, we could go on and on talking about these different dispensations, but I I think you understand that it's obvious, man, that Noah wasn't expected to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But guess what? You and I live in more light today than Noah lived in. Now, you say, well, preacher, did God save people back then? Sure, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham had righteousness imputed unto him, and I'm certainly not suggesting that they were any less saved but I am saying this, that God has different ways He's dealt with mankind throughout human history. And here's what it is related to. What knowledge He had dispensed to them. And so these are different dispensations of knowledge that God's given to man. And where there's a dispensation of knowledge, there's, of course, a responsibility to respond accordingly to that. And so dividing the Word of God in an appropriate way. And that gives us some insight into what Paul says the New Testament, when he talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, in other words, we ought to recognize, and if I was to define dispensationalism, I'd define it simply as this, recognizing and respecting the divisions that God makes in the Bible. Recognizing there are divisions there, there are distinctions there, and then respecting those as we study the Bible, and not casting them aside and pretending as though they are not there. This morning I was talking to my wife on the way into church, and I had just been meditating on the idea of how we study the Bible and what's important and and what matters as we study it. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you study the Bible, it it can feel like you're drinking from a water hose, from a fire hydrant. Let me say it that way. Not drinking from a water hose. Some of you all did that, amen? I might be what's wrong, but uh, no telling the chemicals inside them water hoses, amen? But uh, But drinking from a fire hydrant. Uh, but, you know, really when you boil it down, I would say this, that there are three distinctions that matter are preeminent above all other distinctions as you study the Bible. I don't know if you ever write anything down. I don't even know if what I'm about to say is worth writing down, but here's something you could write down. Amen? Uh, these three distinctions as you study the Bible, if you get these wrong, your theology, what you believe about God's, going to be all wacky. It's going to be all wrong. It's going to be all messed up. The first distinction is this, the distinction between Jew and Gentile. If you don't respect that distinction as you study the Bible and see that there's a difference in the way God treated the Jews as His covenant people and how He treated Gentiles, you're going to be all messed up. The second distinction uh, is the distinction between the first portion and the second portion of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We could say it this way, the difference between the rapture and then the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. The rapture is when the Lord is going to return to take His church home to heaven with Him, His bride. Amen. And the glorious appearings when He's going to appear, and all the world will behold Him. Every eye will look upon Him, uh, and Israel will see Him whom they have pierced. If you don't get that distinction right, you're going to be all messed up as you study your Bible. And then there is a third distinction that I think is paramount as we study the Bible, and that is the distinction between positional and practical truth. You say, well, preacher, what is positional and practical truth? Positional truth is how God has judicially chosen to view you in light of Calvary. Practical truth is who and what you really are. Now, one day, here's what the Bible says, uh, that we are predestined, we are foreordained, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. We are viewed as and in the stead of Christ in our relationship with God. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ, fellow heirs with Him. We don't always live that way. But one day, we're going to be made just like Him. The New Testament says, John's epistle, uh, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And Paul would say it this way in the book of Philippians, that this vile body will be made like unto His glorious body. So there's a difference between how God has judicially chosen to see you and how you live your life and conduct yourself day by day. And one of the goals of Bible Christianity of growth, in fact, I could say it this way, that growth in, in Christianity, Christian development, Christian growth, is making your practical look more like your positional. Being more of how God views you and what God has for you. We've read here in Colossians chapter number 3 about the resurrection life, But before we get into the preaching there, I want us to notice something that Paul would often do. Now that you understand what positional and practical truth are. Over and over again in the Pauline epistles, uh, the Apostle Paul would point to a historical fact, more often than not the fact of Calvary or the fact of the resurrection. And he would then draw from that a positional truth about the believer. I'll give you an example. The Bible says that if Christ died for all, then we're all sinners. Christ died and He tasted death for every man. That's what the book of Hebrews says. Now, if He tasted death for every man, and uh, death is the wages of sin, then we must all be sinners that owed a sin debt that had to be paid that Christ went to the cross of Calvary for us, So he would state a plain fact, historically speaking. Then he would make a positional application. He would say, now what does that mean about our relationship with God? And then he would extrapolate from that a practical application. And you will find this model over and over and over and over in the Pauline epistles. Let me read an example of this out of Romans chapter number 6. Paul is talking about the death of Christ and what that means for us that are Christians that have believed on Christ. And he says in verse number 3 of Romans 6, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. That's what baptism pictures. And in fact, the outward action of baptism is just a shadow of what spiritually takes place when a person believes on Jesus Christ. We are spiritually baptized into the body of Christ. Now, that does mean we are a part of the church, but it extends beyond that. What it means is we were identified with Him on the cross of Calvary. And that's what Paul means here. So many of us, he starts with this event, the death of Christ on Calvary, and then he draws from it a positional truth, something about what that means for you and I. Know ye not that so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, We're baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. You understand what he's doing here. He's saying, you came to Jesus Christ, and you said, I'll die to self, and I'll believe on Christ, and I'll be born again. If that's true, then you became identified with Jesus Christ. Not only in His death, thank God the story didn't end with His death, but also with His resurrection. And he says this in verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. He says, what was true for you about the death of Christ is equally true about the life of Christ. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That ain't your daddy. Amen. When it says your old man, that's talking about your old nature. Talking about who you were and what you were. It was crucified with him. Why was that done? Why did that have to happen? Why couldn't He have merely deemed us or willed us or wished us to be saved? No, there had to be a death. Not only did there have to be a death because there had to be a, a pardon, a, a payment. There had to be a death so that there could be a funeral. A funeral for your old nature. A funeral for the old man. It's not just His death that matters, friend. It's His burial. Did you ever notice part of the gospel is the burial? So it says, First Corinthians 15... Moreover, brethren, I deliver unto you that which I first saw, that that I also received, uh, how that Christ uh, died according to the scripture, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the scripture. The burial of Christ is a part of the gospel. Well, why? Because it figures for us the putting away of the old man. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Why? That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. I I tell you this, I hate to lose anybody, but I I have found this to be true. I, I pre- preachers say sometimes you know uh, preacher, I just I just wish that you know I've had pastors tell me this. I I wish that my people would just start stop giving me problems, you know. And some of my friends they go through yeah you know, I mean hard things in ministry, I mean rough, and they say what's it going to take. Uh To get him to quit giving me problems, i tell them a funeral. Amen. Yours or theirs, doesn't matter which, but it's going to take one of the two. I've never had any trouble out of a dead man. Never once. A dead man has no will. A dead man has no agency. A dead man has no ambitions. He is dead. Now notice what he says, this next verse. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, we know that's true, He's alive forevermore, has the keys of death and hell. Death hath no more dominion over Him. For in that He died, He died unto sin once. But in that He liveth, He liveth unto God. He has established a positional truth about the believer. He says, "You believed on Christ, and you hung yourself on the cross of Calvary. You were placed in the body of Christ. He died in your stead. You died with Him. Positionally speaking, figuratively speaking, judicially speaking, you were buried with Him. But if you were buried with Him, then you were raised with Him. And He died that He might sin uh, that that sin might have no dominion over Him. Now He was not a sinner." Uh, but because He was willing to be made sin for us, death was able to take a temporary jurisdiction over Him. But when He arose, hey, He had already, by the sacrifice of Himself, put away sin. And He's not going on the cross anymore. He has already died for man's sins. And now He is alive forevermore. He's had His last meeting with the graveyard. He met death and was not able to be holden of it. And He has defeated death. Now he is alive forevermore. And he is alive unto God. That should be the position of you and I every single born again believer. Now notice this last two verses. Likewise, wait a minute, likewise, I thought we was all sorted out, right? We're all resurrected, raised, resurrection power in life and never sin anymore. Well, positionally, that's true. But practically, I know all of you and you know me. And you know that's not always how we live. That's how God views us. He's chosen to view us that way. He's not naive to who and what we are, but judicially, meaning how He deals with us, He deals with us as being risen, dead indeed unto sin, alive indeed unto God. We don't always live that way, but here He makes it practical. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. How do we do that? Verse 12, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Notice what he did. He started with a historical fact. He moved on to a positional truth about our relationship with Christ. And then he makes a practical application. And here's what he says. Hey, your positional ought to be more like your, or your practical ought to be more like your positional. This, by the way, is what Paul means in Philippians chapter 3. That mysterious phrase, if that I may apprehend, that for which also I am apprehended. What he's saying is God saved me, that he might make me something. But I'm not waiting until I get to heaven to be that something. I'm going to try as best as I can. And he admits, not already perfect. I'm not already attained. But he said, "I, I follow after. I'm striving, I'm pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm not running out the clock waiting to heaven to be like Jesus. He says, I'm determined to right now live a life like Jesus Christ. He's saying, I want my practical to look more like my positional. Look in our text tonight, and I've got just a few simple thoughts I want to share with you. Paul is doing a very similar practice here in Colossians chapter number 3 here he's talking about the resurrection life of Jesus Christ and what that means for you and for I. I want to preach on this thought, living in light of his life. The resurrection is the most powerful, transformative, and engaging truth of the Christian life. I'll tell you, there's a lot of times we'll shout it out over the death. But a lot of times we don't shout it out over the resurrection. And we think of the death of Christ having made a marked difference in our life. By the way, it has. I'd be on my way to a devil's hell had he not died in my place. But I'm glad. Hey, there's two sides to that coin. I'm glad that a great death has been died on my behalf. But I'm also thankful that a great life can be lived on my behalf. And so Paul's dealing with that truth. He mentions to us that three things mark the resurrection life before he unpacks it more deeply. He just gives an overview of what it looks like to live like like Christ is is risen from the dead, to live like the tomb is empty. Verse 1, he reveals to us that it means new ambitions in the believer's life. He says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. You understand that From the moment that Christ rose from the dead, it was just some 40 short days before He would ascend unto His heavenly Father. And whenever He rose from the dead, He didn't start building a house and He didn't even buy green bananas. Somebody say amen. He was headed towards leaving. He was on His way out of this world and this earthly ministry. And in fact, you say, preacher, what does Christ do all day? What's He doing now? I can tell you what He's doing now. He is in heaven seated at the right hand of the Father, and he ever liveth to make intercession for us. He is ministering in those things that are above. And so the resurrection life, you say, what is the resurrection life about? It's about ministering in things that are above. Things that are not of this world and of this earth. Uh, listen, let me, let me go ahead and save you a lot of anxiety and a lot of chewed fingernails and a lot of falled out hair. Uh, the reality of it is this. We better pull our tent stakes up and quit being so tethered to this world around us. God didn't design us to be that way. Uh, listen, I, I, I mean, we came over here. We started a country. Uh, we based on the Bible and we thought we had found Canaan and we thought we had created righteousness incarnate upon this earth and it gave Christianity a wrong-headed perspective. We started to get this idea of, well, we don't want to lose what we got here. Uh, But you know, in the Old Testament, they didn't reckon that they had anything here. Uh, They looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. They confessed plainly that there were strangers and pilgrims In this world, you say, Preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying part of living in the power of Christ's risen life is recognizing that this world is not what that life is all about. That God has saved you for greater things, transcendent things, things beyond the paltry concerns of this world around. Preacher, but I've got to engage with the world around us. Oh yes, yes you do. You don't just have to, God wants you to. He didn't take us out of this world, He left us in this world and just prayed that we'd be kept from this world. God intends for you to very much make a difference in the world around you. I'm not asking you to become like a hermit and cloister yourself away in some monastery and quit interacting with humanity. I don't believe that's the will of God. I believe we're to be salt and to be light. Hey, the salt don't do no good in the shaker. It's got to be put on the dish. So I'm not suggesting that we don't interact with this world. I am saying this, that our ambitions should not be set on this world. It should be set on heaven. New ambitions. Verse number 2, I like this. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. One of the things I always try to encourage and comfort people about when they experience a a death, and some people you can do this with, and some people you can't. You have to have discernment in how you deal with people. But... um, And, and, and let me preface what I'm about to say by saying there's a lot of good, wonderful people in, uh, you know, funeral homes and, and, and in that field that do a lot to minister to families. uh, This is, this is a, this is a general, a generalization and I understand it is. There's a lot of exceptions to what I'm about to say. But a lot of these funeral homes are predatory. And they'll get somebody in there and their heart's broke and they're missing their loved one and it's funny, man. Little Johnny always preferred to casket with the brass trim. Every time. I've never known him to pick the smaller casket spray. I've never known him to pick the lower grade of... of, of ca- and they'll get people in there. They'll prey upon their, their emotions, you know. And they'll say things like, well, don't you think he deserved that? You know. And uh, let me tell you, <laughs> them people's going to answer to God too one day. And a lot of times if I have liberty to talk to a family, I'll try to remind them, listen, your loved one, if they're saved, they're at the feet of Jesus. They don't care what you bury them in. They don't care whether you pick the bigger casket spray or, or, or the upgraded casket. That does not matter to them. They don't care. It, it, and most of us would admit, hey, if it's legal, stuff me in a sack and throw me in the backyard. I don't care. I'm out of here, man. That don't, that don't matter to me. And, uh, you know, but I, I will say this. Dead men, uh, they don't love anything about this world. They're not impressed by the nicer casket. They don't crave the bigger casket spray. They have no desires in this world, in this dimension. When a person dies, if they are alive, and we know from the Word of God that every man lives on somewhere, they don't desire things of this earth. They desire heavenly things. You say, well, preacher, what about people that die without Christ? Hey, they desire heavenly things. More than you could ever imagine. Hey, even if it's just for Lazarus to touch his finger in a cup of cold water and then touch their tongue, I'll tell you this, the rich man, he didn't want nothing hell had. He didn't want nothing that hell had. And he didn't want anything on earth except for his brethren to get born again. He had lived his whole life infatuated and obsessed with riches. He didn't care a thing about them then. All he cared about were heavenly things. I would say that when we die to self... And when we live in the light of His resurrection, it's going to give us new affections. Man, we just won't be we won't be in. And let me help you. If you if you still got a little bit of road in front of you, I mean, if you're a young person, can I just help you? You ain't going to care nothing about it in 40 years anyway. You ain't going to be you ain't going to enjoy it then anyway. You think that you will? You know, you think oh, I'm going to build all this up and I'm going to have all this and oh man, I'm going to love every bit of it? No. Uh, the, the, the reality is, and, and I, I'm not trying to discourage you, but Solomon talks about this in the book of Ecclesiastes. You ought to read chapter 12 and, and read the bleak picture of what getting old looks like. you heard everywhere. You can't hear nothing. You don't enjoy nothing. Food don't taste good. Are you encouraged yet tonight? <laughs> and that's why older people will say, isn't it a shame that that, that, that young age is wasted on youth? Because they're saying, now i got the money and the sense to enjoy it, but I ain't got the taste buds or the joints to. Hey. And so, let me just help you by investing your life. You ready? Let me just help you. Set your affection on things above. I'm not begrudging you anything. Listen, I, I, I hope you have as nice a threads and as big a house and as fancy a car as God will bless you with. I don't begrudge any of that to you. But I'm just telling you, learn to love eternal things. This life is short. I see not only new ambitions, new affections, but a new anticipation (laughs) that is in our life. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, who is our life. You know, this morning we talked about how He's our song. Here we're told He's our life. There's a lot that that phrase means. In the context of the immediate passage, your life is hid with Christ in God. The most precious part about you is kept up, vouchsafed in the person of Christ. Not only that, all that's good about this life comes from Him. Not only that, if we want a life that's worth living, it comes from walking close to Him. Hey, preacher, how do I compartmentalize all that? Don't, don't just fall in love with Jesus Christ. Cause He's your life. He's your life. I sometimes, and, 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 you know, fretfully and shamefully, Too too rare is it is it the case, but sometimes I'll just get overwhelmed with how good He is and just thinking about how precious He is, man. And listen, if you don't know Him, that may not mean anything to you. I know that. And I'm not trying to just talk outside of the sphere of what... But I'm just telling you, if you ever got to know Him, oh man, He's wonderful. He's our life. (laughs) You say, He's an important part. No, He is our life. And whenever you... Meet Him. Hey, anything that looked like life before won't look like life now. He is our life. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. This is an interesting phrase. I told you a moment ago that one of the important distinctions in the Bible is the difference between the rapture and the glorious. What was the word we used? Appearing. The Bible says when He shall appear. Ye sh- shall ye, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. You know, whenever Christ returns to this world at the close of the tribulation period, uh, Jude said that he saw Him with ten thousands of His saints behind him. The Bible describes what it will be like in the book of Joel as the armies of heaven roll from glory to this earthly scene. The Bible tells us that when He comes back in Revelation 19, that the armies of heaven... Are with him. And can I tell you this? Hey, when that day comes, we're going to be glad that we are on the winning side. He says this right now. Life is a struggle. Right now, it is arduous. Right now, there is sorrow and toil and trouble. But go ahead and set your affection on things above, because there's coming on a day. Hey, listen, there's coming. Earth ain't going to invade heaven. But one day heaven's going to invade earth. We ain't taking these earthly kingdoms and setting them up up there. We're taking that heavenly kingdom. And God himself is going to set it up down here. And so I will tell you this. Part of living in the resurrection life. And I had about 68% more sermon after this that you ain't even going to get to hear. Alright? You're just going to have to wait for the director's cut to come out. The box set. And then you'll get those deleted scenes. Alright? But can I just close with this thought? Can I close with this truth? Part of living in the light of His resurrection is pulling up your tent stakes from this world, falling in love with heavenly truth and heavenly economy and heavenly reality, and living in anticipation of His one-day return. There's people living like Jesus is never coming back. I remember when it got to be reported that, uh, that the Obamas, you've heard of them, Bought a multi-million-dollar beachside mansion up in Martha's Vineyard, and uh, I ain't never been to Martha's. I ain't got the kind of money some of y'all got to be going up Martha's Vineyard. I got—they won't even let me into Myrtle Beach grandstand. Even they won't even—they don't let me anywhere near it. And uh, but isn't that interesting for a man that believes that the oceans are rising so fast they're gonna swallow us to pieces? That's weird. You know what people would say to that, right? If you really believe that, you wouldn't be buying oceanfront property. Oh my, friend. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. If we really believe that, wonder where we'd invest our lives. Wonder if we'd be investing in things that's getting ready to burn up anyway. Wonder if we'd be investing in things that ain't going to make a lick of difference on the other side of glory. I'm just telling you this, living in light of His resurrection is not just some kind of self-motivational superpower to make you believe you can leap tall buildings in a single bound. It's something that takes the authority and custody of your life and makes you like Jesus Christ. And the more you recognize that truth, the more you embrace that reality, hey, you say, preacher, uh, sometimes I want to do wrong things. Sure, cause the flesh is still active in you. Your flesh is just as lost as it's ever been. Your flesh, uh, by, uh, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Your flesh is not, it's not going to be uh, sanctified or renovated uh, or beautified. It's got to be mortified. Your flesh is just as lost as it's always been. God has saved you and he has changed your life but that flesh that old man uh, that's that part that has to be put on the cross of Calvary it has to be mortified it has to be laid low that has to be set aside that has to be denied and has to be buffeted and has to be oppressed by the deliberate decision to live in the light of his life day by day if you then be risen with Christ what do you do seek those things which are above For Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead. Your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Let's pray together tonight. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Musician's going to come play. I preached what message I'm going to preach tonight. But if the Holy Spirit of God has dealt on your heart about some matter, why don't you meet the Lord in this altar? Won't you let him have his will and way in your heart and in your life? Let him speak to you and let him work in you. Father, bless this invitation. Lord, may it magnify Jesus Christ. May it bless his soul. And Lord, may we be obedient. May we be well-pleasing in all that we do. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name.